listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. We spent the last couple of weeks talking about this idea of grasping and how this is at the center of our suffering. And it takes two forms. Uh, um, grasping either shows up as craving or as resistance. The craving or resistance. As many of you know, I had uh, I had a kind of a group of teachers. I think I, I was sounds like fairly Western. I, I wasn't, <clears throat> at least initially willing to commit to one teacher. I wanted to have the experience of kind of sampling from, from several. And as a result, I had uh, uh, you know, uh, some key people, formative people in my spiritual development that I, I, I owe everything to. Uh, and the fact that uh, not one of them until much, much later in my practice not one really took over. I think w- the, the, the blessing and the curse was I was never able to go very deep initially. Um, at least the teaching didn't, didn't uh, it didn't resonate uh, like it did when I decided to go just with this, you know, one guy. Uh, my travels took me to Thailand. My travels took me to Nepal. I studied with masters in both uh, the Vajrayana tradition, Tibetan, and then also in uh, 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 Thailand, where I was with a group of gentlemen who were Vipassana uh, masters. The point I'm trying to make here is that it wasn't the flavor of the teaching that made the difference. It was an availability to really accepting what was being offered so that there was not this grasping uh, or this craving that it should be a certain way or a resistance that it should not be a certain way. When there was this moment actually a series of moments when there was this, quite simply, the best way to put it is like an in-between space where the teaching itself kind of went past the teacher. It went past the group, and it went past the teaching itself. It was just bizarre. I don't really have words for it. But I do have, I do have something that this one particular teacher told me that I, I came across today that I just, it reminded me of her. I loved, I loved it. It says, whenever we refuse to face our circumstances... We begin to rely on our cravings and addictions to insulate us from feeling what's really going on. 
We may cling to drugs, alcohol, sex, shopping, codependent behaviors, eating, mastering a particular topic, music, spiritual practices, or any other behavior or conviction that we habitually turn to in order to keep us from the uncertainty that the universe is actually giving us in each moment. In this space of perpetual grasping, we live lives that revolve around addiction. If we look carefully enough, we can see that each addiction begins and then ends in a place of pain every single time. So, what I wanted to begin with tonight is just this offering that I'd like each of you to give yourselves. And that offering is... probably the most fertile of all addictions that we have, and that is our craving from others. What do you want from others? What do you want from others? And you can find, you can kind of uncover that the minute you start like craving their admiration or respect their love you want them to find you attractive you want them to find you smart whatever you crave from others you want them in a certain way you are offering up a clue to your suffering in that moment we will lead lives of suffering the minute we start wanting stuff from others because <laughs> we'll for the most part be perpetually disappointed and there's a cool trick to take us out of that disaster quickly I heard one teacher describe it she said uh Instead of, I'll get this wrong, so forgive, but instead of figuring out what you want from others, figure out what you want to give to others. What do you want to give? Not what do you want to take? This is small. This comes from, this take comes from something that does not feel like it's enough when we give we practice the actual realization that we are boundless one is divided one is expansive so what do you want from others What do you want from others? I would propose when you uncover what you want from others, you are in that moment feeling ego's skin. So in tonight's meditation, if you can just imagine 
fact, imagine it right now so that once you get into meditation, you're no longer imagining, you're just kind of there. Imagine that you wanted nothing. Imagine what that might be like. You realize that you're not going to get, ego is not going to get everything it wants, ever. What would it be like? What would it be like if you could just be with that spaciousness of not getting anything? Not getting anything. Our thoughts surrounding this, most likely, are going to be really cautious. Most likely, everyone in this room has felt a little bit, whoa, 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 whoa. Good. That's the whole point. Okay? Be very intimate with that. It's not so scary, actually, if you just really give it, give yourself over to it. See, see where it takes you. What would be left? What would be left in you if all you were was repeated, authentic giving? Let's practice with that. So, based on kind of what I was talking about prior to our sitting, uh, the way into suffering is through grasping. The way out of suffering is by not grasping. Ready to go home now? Okay. Uh, all kidding aside, it's it's that simple. The the trick is watching where there is quasi grasping, even though it's supposed to look like giving. When we start recognizing how often our giving actually is a form of manipulation to get something, we give so that we can get. This is the ego's domain. The ego creates trade-offs. The ego creates a you know a quid pro quo situation in all circumstances. It always wants to negotiate a this for a that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Which is why it's so very, very difficult to uncover truly awakened activity and awakened people in politics when an entire system is predicated on back-scratching, it's very hard. It's very hard to find individuals that can take a much more expansive uh, view. And that applies most definitely for us internally. If you've ever, if you've ever noticed that you are giving something so that you can feel a certain way, well, I'll cut this check to that charity because it assuages my guilt. Or, you know, something that's, that's a very common one, actually. Something along those lines. Basically, that's not giving. If, if we're cutting a check uh, so that we don't feel guilty, what we're doing 
is we are giving, air quotes, as a strategy for avoiding our guilt. Instead of facing our guilt, let's say, I'll use this example. Instead of really facing our guilt, becoming deeply intimate with our guilt, what do we do? We try to run away from it and put a little feather in our cap at the same time. Being hyper-aware of this is very important. Just like being hyper-aware of what you really want from others. Being hyper-aware of what you want from others. If there is wanting on the part of what others can give you, you are coming at life from a position of lack. There's non-fulfillment. Awakening is utter fulfillment. So, how do we see this map itself out? Uh, there, there are several, several different ways. The, um, typically, I, I speak about it in, in very, very simple terms, and I want to take it a next step. I always say that there's a, the first step of recognition. The very first step of recognition is where we start coming into this experience of spiritual practice, of spiritual work, recognizing that works for me or that doesn't. It's entirely egoic. Okay? But that's okay. Ego gets us into this, this game. Oftentimes, uh, situations of, of great challenge where the ego realizes, the small self realizes it cannot control, it cannot manage all aspects of life the way it thought it could. It had negotiated a perfect investment portfolio over years and years and years and oh my goodness gracious how, how dare how dare the global economy hiccup like this you know I mean we can go into some really really interesting spaces it gets challenged it gets boxed it gets cornered to the point where it starts throwing up its hands and this is such a beautiful moment in anybody's experience. It can happen also with death, with illness, with any extreme circumstance where it forces us in our quiet moments when we look in the mirror, when we look within. Sometimes we can even do that, do that simultaneously, looking at the mirror as a way of looking within. And we take a breath And we really wonder if we're going to make it. It's a great space. Great space to be in for spiritual work. Because what it's done is it's jarred loose the conviction, the surety. It's jarred loose our identification with safety. It's jarred loose everything that we have held so tightly to, right? And in, the, in those moments, there's this really uh, bizarrely beautiful opportunity for huge, huge, huge expanse. When we really allow for ourselves to question, to wonder, to not know what the next step will be. In Christian terms, we give it over to God. In Buddhist terms, we start recognizing our true nature. 
in Western philosophical terms, we start staring into the abyss and recognizing that the more we stare into the abyss, we can actually feel it staring back into us. And that's when there's this cool birth of character. Not character in the egoic sense, as in, I'm a good person, but character as in our true nature. We start seeing what's left when all else falls away. And it's a very, very beautiful thing. And it almost always comes along with some huge challenge. <clears throat> so that's the recognition. When we recognize the huge challenge as an offering, when we recognize the illness of self or other as a brand new adventure that has the potential to carry us into the heart of awakening, when we can see our whole world collapse and still recognize that we're still here. And there's a certain subtle thrill associated with that still here. Then we're in the place that I guess can best best be described as um, an authentic openness where we're not trying to manage the experience any longer. We've we've recognized, you know, that this, you know, that the there's the egoic negotiation, and then we get to the wall where we hit the wall. And then there's this opportunity for that, that deep opening. And then, once that deep opening, we can actually relax into it. We've practiced it enough as we sit still on Monday nights, or we, we realize that being, uh, miss, missing that, that, uh, uh, that film, we tried so hard to get there at 7.05, and we, we couldn't quite make We got, got there after the, let's say, the uh, previews had finished and we didn't we didn't want to go go through with it. We don't get caught by that. We don't get caught by the fact that there is no more chocolate ice cream at EC. And if you haven't eaten at EC, do you want you want Nirvana in a cone? EC on College Ave. I'm gonna give them a plug. They're not paying me to do this. It's the most amazing thing I think I've ever tasted in a cone. I, I'm not kidding and I'm a connoisseur that that am I right, Kathy? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. All right. Um when, when, when that flavor is there that we don't want, in whatever capacity it might be, and it no longer bugs us, we've gone into this space uh, beyond the recognition, beyond any form of resistance, and we're at a place of release. The instruments of grasping have kind of fallen away as being insubstantial and trivial. We're no longer craving and we're no longer pushing stuff away. We're open. There's this authentic, as I said, an authentic openness to what is. And if we can practice from there, (coughs) pardon me, if we can practice from that authentic openness in every aspect of life, 
with every single person that we meet, with every bit of us that needs something from somebody else, when we can bring that kind of awareness back in to that in us which is small, the mystery takes over. And when that mystery takes over, we go into kind of this this really beautiful realm that um, I'm best way maybe to describe this would be uh, integration. We integrate. We integrate this openness, this deep sense of stillness, even while it's busy, even while everything is going crazy. We bring this eye of the hurricane mentality and physicality to our world to our world so that we can participate in the world that then that integration that if you will a fourth step just is so 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 beautiful to see in people and every one of us I'm hopeful has had the good fortune of meeting not only up with that experience but also meeting up with human beings that can seem to rest there, can come from that place. They're called teachers. And everybody ultimately is a teacher. In the relative sense, those people who kind of throb with that, uh, that, that energy in uh, Hinduism, Vedanta, Hindu tradition, we call it Shakti, you know, that presence. It inspires something in us. No matter what's going on, no matter what disaster has come before us, no matter what success we would love to cling to, no matter what disaster we want to avoid, we can come at life from that place. We can then become the embodiment of this integrated awakening. It's not one that stays on the mountaintop. It's not one that stays in the cave or in the monastery. It's one that participates right here in the middle of a rush hour, in the middle of a job, in the middle of what should prove to be a very interesting shopping season that we experience every year right around this time. Because you know, Christmas begins just prior to Halloween. (laughs) But can we carry this kind of open, relaxed presence into that space? Start there. Or start with something even easier. TiVo didn't work. Oh, hmm. Let's, Let's look at that. Huh. All right. Whatever it is, start small. Start small. In your meditation, this isn't a good meditation. Man, it was so much better last... That evaluation, the resistance to what is. Look at that. That's all we're doing. That's all we're doing. All we're doing is waking up. Yes. some point where what you're 
striving becomes kind of a natural mode of being. Yeah. Because I kind of, I feel like, uh, I understand the teaching, actually, I understand the Dharma, but living it, mm-hmm. it's a quite different matter. Yeah. And I get very caught up in day-to-day life, in work, in whatever. And I can sometimes recognize, oh, well, that was really judgmental of me, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing, you know. After the fact, right. is uh, I would like to get to a place where the Dharma is working through me. Right. You know, does that happen at some point? Uh-huh. So do you want to know how? No, you can, well, sure, 10,000 hours, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the, the, the practice does not involve thinking through this. It doesn't, it doesn't involve understanding the Dharma. You know, it's, it, instead, what it, it ultimately is the embodiment of where the teaching points the individual practitioner. So, so there, there, comes, there comes this really neat opportunity for us to walk the talk. And it starts on the cushion. It starts on the cushion. Real common disease, if you will, for, for meditators is that their time on the cushion is either a time to escape or a time to think about something. And they call it meditation. Well, I'll meditate on that. Don't do that. Okay. And, well, stick with me here, because this, this hopefully will make sense in a second. What, what, what happens then is it, the, this work, spiritual work, can become an intellectual exercise instead of, you know, something that actually expands quite automatically through us as we begin to really still, still ourselves. You don't have to work... Right. Well, but the automatic piece—the automatic piece—arises quite naturally when we practice. Okay. And what happens is people can, based on what you were saying there, and I might be wrong, Paul. I mean, I've known you for several years now. It seems that that there's this gift that you have, this gift that you have, that is—I mean, you have this as so many other people in this room. You're a really, really smart guy. Okay, and smart guys and gals basically have really uh, uh, their egos are conniving. Okay, and so what they do is they are desperate not to let the universe, even though it's knocking at the door all the time, they're desperate not to let it in. Or pick your metaphor. I mean, you know, don't look at that man behind the curtain. Uh, you know, all of that stuff. And so, when we start, we start approaching approaching the Dharma from from a place that isn't about surrender, but it's about grasping. And so, so the the automatic does it does it become automatic? I think it becomes easier over time. I, and I. Yeah, yeah, because because what happens is we begin to start. The, I mean, the, there's. I, I really do believe in my heart of hearts that there is this. Uh, 
incredible correlation between actual number of minutes of stillness simultaneously committed intention. Okay? And when those two legs begin to stand and share the weight, there's this, there's this, this unfolding, this motion that occurs that is just really quite beautiful. It takes over. So the answer is yes, it does become automatic. The shortcut to getting it to become automatic is to make sure that the intention is really clear, okay? And make sure that the practice is really sincere. So that there is no semblance of getting anything. I mean, at the root of your question is, how do I get here, right? And what I'm trying to tell you to do is stop trying to get, and it'll show up naturally. Actually, I could have said that last sentence, and that would have done the whole thing. <laughs> but you know me. Let's repeat that last sentence verbatim to me, please. Which one? I thought I was sincere. I think. I think I am sincere, yes. The thinking is what the eye does, okay, as an evaluation of sincerity. And what do you have? Grip. Oh, yeah, that's grasping. Right, right. Who, wait, wait, who? That's what? Stick with me, stick with me. That's what? I'm lost now. Good. Now, go from there. Go from there. Go from there. Go from that place of being lost. Because your ego has done such a masterful job of being found continually and having its compass perfectly, the, the orienteering is, is done perfectly, that you're not allowing yourself to get lost. And until you can do that, you're not really surrendering anything. You're not really giving up anything. Okay? And this is where I come in and I tell you, Paul, give, give it all up. And wait till you see what's on the other side of that surrender. The I sense. At the root of the I sense is our freedom. Okay? It's okay to be confused and lost. Don't try to find yourself. Don't try to find yourself. Just be confused and lost and relax. Relax there. It's a, it's a door. It's an opening. I love you, Paul. <laughs> Michael, last week we had us look more at our craving. And when I started meditating, I realized that it really is all craving. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. But is that is that why you give them a Christmas present? I think partly. Okay. Then I would look at your giving of Christmas presents. Here's why. When you study, study giving, 
and you uncover that joy from giving, what you've done is you've let the natural energetic impulse of the universe come through you. Joy is the natural, that, that is the felt sense of surrender. Okay? It's the felt sense of, but, but the, the, the subtlety here is that if you are jonesing for that felt sense of surrender, so you, you know, mm-hmm, looking for a little, a little bit of that, please, you know, and so I'll give to get it, then what you're doing is you're still making a negotiation. If you're allowing the giving to be the natural expression of joy, the whole cycle feeds itself. It's not something that has to be started. It never stops. It's perpetual unless we get our mind in the way that starts to evaluate. So there's no problem at all of of getting something in return, being, being available to receiving something from a gift. That's fine. That's, you know, touchdown. Awesome. Okay? But when we give the present so that we can feel the joy, we've created that negotiation. Ego then, it really, in really a stealthy way, has worked her way into, into the mix. Between now and enlightenment, I mean, how do I function? Because the, the <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, between now and then, yeah. There's, well, I let me... The warm and fuzzy, and that's why I'm doing so many you, because because it brings warm warm fuzzies and so forth. I might turn that around a little bit, and I'll just just think of it in these terms. Um, now is enlightenment, okay? And what you are doing is enlightened work. Ego can call it whatever it wants, but when we, I mean, following those warm fuzzies, <laughs> and simultaneously not running from cold pricklies is awakening. Who the hell said that? Who the hell came up with the... Who's the... There's a guy, I can't remember his name, but the cold prickly and the warm fuzz... You know what I'm talking about? There was a... You have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) There was a a therapist... um, Does anybody know who I'm talking about here? He used to call them cold pricklies. Ah, uh, well, I, you know, it could have been any number of people, but it was still, I remember as a little kid how, how illustrative it was when um, I'm, I'm listening, my mom is reading Mark and me, uh, you know, a bedtime story, and she would say, she'd say, you know, Timmy didn't like the cold prickly that he got from Susie, and, you know, do you know who I'm talking about at all? No, no, it wasn't Marie Sendak, but regardless, this was a therapist, and it created this really interesting scaffolding for, for kids. But <coughs> what it also did was it created a situation where cold pricklies, bad, avoid, warm fuzzies, go to. And what uh, the, the process of awakening, this path that we're on, tells us exactly the opposite. Don't follow either. Let both arise as they arise, whether it's a cold prickly or a warm fuzzy. Great. It's all dharma. Our, our relationship to the, to the uh, warm fuzzy or the cold prickly, our relationship to those things in terms of grasping, I want more warm fuzzy, or avoidance, I don't want a cold prickly, 
that's our delusion. And that's where ego starts to run the entire, you know, the most basic elements of our psychological mess. And it still thinks it's healing, you know? Try, try not knowing. Try not knowing what to do. You'll find that you'll, you'll, your response will be absolutely appropriate and perfect if it's coming from a place of openness as opposed to closure. In the meantime, <laughs> oh, I love that. Between now and enlightenment, that's good. <laughs> it's closer than you think. Yeah. Um, yeah. What Bobby asked is still sticking with me. Um, when you give someone a gift because you want them to be happy, and you enjoy seeing them experience joy, can that be without negotiation? I mean, not if that's why you, what I was saying with Bobby is if it's why you give, if you're giving to someone because you want to see them be happy, what you're doing is you're giving them a thing so that there can be a temporary experience in their heart and mind. Okay? Mm-hmm. Happiness is temporary. It, we're happy and then, you know, it eventually fades. And some of us are really lucky and, you know, have it. I mean, have you ever met somebody whose bar of happiness is just really high and they're, they just tend to be, and they're really kind of fun to be around. They never get knocked. You know, they're going, oh, <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's really quite cool. But, but happiness, happiness tends to, tends to ebb and flow. Our work, ultimately, is to help others and help ourselves be more conscious because consciousness grows. It keeps growing. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, it's, not, it's not a fluctuation. Happiness is a concentric ring, excuse me, uh, uh, consciousness is a concentric ring that keeps, keeps expanding. And it's the gift that keeps on giving, okay? Because the more conscious we are, the more appropriate our responses the less attached to giving somebody a gift and they're bummed, that's okay. It came from here. I'm giving, I'm giving you a gift. I'm, it, it's, there is nothing, nothing attached or sticky about the giving in that case. Our, our giving can be very sticky if we want something in return for it. I want to make you happy. Hoping that like we have just lured happiness out of you and then ha-ha! I'm effective in my happiness dispersal. <laughs> you know, the ego can play that game. But how do you give someone consciousness as a, as an, a tangible gift? <laughs> you don't. Of course not. Right. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. Right. So when you give someone something tangible, mm-hmm. how can that be consciousness? Inducing? Yes. It depends on the intention of your giving. If, you're, if the intention behind your giving is really, really, you know, to go back to Paul's point, if it's, if it's really sincere and it's coming from a place of total love and non-attachment, if it's a surrendered gift, what, what's, what's, coming, what's coming through that gift more than anything else is awareness as opposed to 
a thing. Now that said, by golly, don't trip on this. I mean, what I don't want, you, what I don't want people to walk away from tonight feeling is that they, they have to be really, really careful about their giving. <laughs> I actually would go the other direction. I would say give everything you got with reckless abandon. Okay, you'll get really, really good at it to the point where there is giving and without the slightest expectation of anything in return, including another's happiness, including another's awareness or consciousness. You then become that radiant light that you've always been. But now all the, all the mud's off the lampshade. It's, very, it's, it's, it's powerful. So it's, not, it's, not, it's nothing negotiated about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dave. Well, see now that—that's a whole different issue. I think, uh, yeah, you, you want to give that a lot, and and um, charge them double. Yeah. totally uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I. You know. I don't know. What do I say to that? I was reading, it's funny, it's fu I'm going to give everyone a slight confession here. I was reading something the other day, and I was like, dang, that's, that's pretty good. And about a half hour later, I was coming back, because I was doing a, a you know, I, was, I, I, long story short, Aaron's incredible father uh, has helped rebuild the website, and he wouldn't accept any money for it. He was just being this great guy. And uh, so finally I could get back in and start uploading, uploading stuff. And so I started to do that. And I was reading something about 30 minutes after I was so pleased with myself. And I read it and I kind of went, oh, how did that get through? You know? So even then, they're just, I mean, this is, this is, this is at its best. At its best, it's just an offering. At its worst, you, you could use this. <laughs> You know what I mean? Quite literally, it's just, uh, uh, and we, I think, uh, as a as a teacher, it's taken me several years to kind of, un, uh, you know, kind of unpack this, but it doesn't. It can be anybody's words that can goose just the right, right. It can push just the right lever that opens up the floodgates to, uh, you know, a, a really deep and profound insight. You know. It doesn't have to be Buddhist. It doesn't have to be. It can be, it can be, you know, a cow up on the hill over here, you know, when uh, in the early morning in springtime, just having a ball, just yelling, 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 yelling. It can be anything. Tragedy can awaken us just as easily as bliss. You know, I have no idea really where that was going or coming <laughs> from, but thanks, Dave. You, you always you bring out just. <laughs> I, I love you too. <laughs>